It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. We start with the most expensive museum. In Canadian history, the new Royal BC Museum, $1 billion the total cost of this project. Man, oh man, you talk about controversy on this one. Is this the best use of your money at this time? Now, it is a big day on this file today. The business case, the business plan for this project set to be released finally by government. Culture Minister Melanie Mark set to release it at 1 o'clock this afternoon. Why is this project costing so much, the most expensive museum in the whole country's history? Why is the government planning to shut down the existing museum just 16 weeks from now? They're not starting construction for four years. It's going to take eight years to complete the thing. Why are we shutting this down in September? Okay, it's a lot of questions. Maybe we'll get some answers today. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Adam Olson, BC Green Party, MLA, Saanich, North and the Islands. He's been critical of this project. Hey, Adam, thanks for coming on today. Thanks a lot for having me, Mike. What, what are you looking for in this business plan today? Details. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, basic, just basic details. You know, I think uh, it, was a, it was an odd announcement that was made uh, a couple Fridays ago, Friday the 13th. Mark that day yeah. on your calendar. It's a, yeah. it's a big day for the BC NDP. And, you know, I think the reality is, is that the, you know, the premier stood uh, with the minister of, of, um, of culture, uh, Melanie Mark, and th- they announced a, uh, an $800 million project. They had no materials to back it up. They had no business uh, case to back it up. They said that one exists uh, when they were pressed on it. They had no drawings. There was nothing for the British Columbia uh, population to imagine um, yeah. because there, you know, there were no designs and, and, and nothing to, to tempt us with. So, you know, I think, um, the reality of the, the, the public relations, um, was, a, was disastrous, uh, on, on the announcement of this. Uh, yeah. and, uh, now I think, you know, British Columbians are looking to find out exactly, uh, what it is that we're going to get for $789 million. And, you know, my hope is, is to, to get a better mm-hmm. understanding of, why it is, you know, the federal government's not at the table uh, as a partner in this and, oh. and, um, you know, some, some other questions. Yeah. Let me play a clip here for you from Minister Melanie Mark when she made this announcement and get your thoughts. So here she is on that uh, Friday the 13th announcement here on, on why they want to do this. And part of it is to uh, highlight Indigenous culture and history in our province. I really want to get your thoughts on that. Here's what she had to say. We are taking action to ensure that the stories of all British Columbians who shaped this province are added to the collections and exhibition halls of the new Royal BC Museum. We are taking the diverse stories of British Columbians and Indigenous people out of the shadows and into the light. Adam, you are an Indigenous leader, an Indigenous MLA, member of the Sartlet First Nation, and you've been very critical of this project. Like when you hear the minister there talk about, look, this is about taking the uh, the Indigenous experience out of the shadows, bringing it into the light. You don't see it that way? Well, look, back in 2017, there was a, there was a, a conference about repatriation. I think Indigenous nations have been very, very clear that the the dark history of these collections and how these items uh, that are in the 
uh, whether they're in the visitor's gallery or whether they're in the basement uh, storage areas of, of the uh, museum, the history behind how these uh, items were collected is is very, very dark. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a history that the museum wants to talk about. The museum does not want to uh, really uh, have a conversation about repatriation. A few dollars are put on the table uh, every now and then to... To, to say that we're we're having that conversation, but but we're not really. And so, you know, the, the problem with announcing a seven hundred eighty nine million dollar museum before having an honest discussion about how these collections were attained and what their purpose and how they're going to be displayed, if they're going to be displayed in the future, is is really putting the cart before the horse. We need to have a discussion about how these items, where these items, who's going to be the curator of these items that, uh, you know, in many cases may not be displayed. They may not be for public display. The other thing I think that needs to be pointed out here, Mike, is that, you know, when the Premier stands up in question, in question period and says that they're going to be talking, uh, you know, that, they're, that this project, this museum is going to be sharing the collective history of British Columbia, what, what he misses is the reality that many of the objects that exist in that museum are culturally relevant to Indigenous people today. This is not our history. This is who we are as people. It defines us today, not in the past. And so okay. we still have a premier who doesn't understand or doesn't grasp the reality that, that our cultures are living and breathing today. You made a, a very passionate speech on this topic in the House recently, and I want to play a short clip of that for the listeners. And I, this was quite powerful, I thought, as an Indigenous MLA, an Indigenous leader in our province, speaking about this project. Let's have a listen to your thoughts here, and then I want to see if we can expand on it a little bit. So let's have a listen here. The history is the grave robbing of my ancestors. It cannot be fixed by a bigger, brighter, shinier museum built with mass timber and wrapped in a Lekwungen-inspired veneer. A new shrine to house the systemic rot. Okay, the new shrine to house the systemic rot of the system. When, when I listened to that, I thought, like, is Adam is Adam saying you're you're opposed to a a, a museum in principle? Like, you don't think there should be a museum, or you, or you're opposed to the way that this museum is being announced? Like, what what is your opposition there? My opposition. So, so look, we, we have not had an honest conversation about the collections in those museums. Um, there, there are some awful stories about uh, how these items were, and I'll put them as in air brackets, being purchased. So, you know, the the reality of of this is is that before we go out and spend taxpayer money, uh, seven hundred, you know, borrow against you know the future, eight hundred million dollars. Yeah. We we've committed to reconciliation in this province, Mike. And so we need to make sure that the right conversations are going first. I remember growing up in the museum. I know that we have, you know, in, in our society, we have a relationship with museums. And, and what I'm challenging here is I'm challenging what this government knows to be true, and that is that Indigenous people have been very interested in repatriating some of those items back. I'm also talking about the fact that, you know, and I think that most British Columbians would find this appalling, but there are still ancestral remains that we don't get access to. These are people, you know, and in 2022, to think that that, that is a, a challenge to, to be identifying, locating, and returning the ancestral remains of, of our people right. back home. So you and think then, all, you know, 
So you think all of that should be returned, like these cultural objects should be returned to First Nations before there's any talk of a new museum? Am well, I hearing I you right? We should, have, we should have the conversation about what that looks like, what Indigenous nations... This is the promise that we've made to Indigenous people, is that we'd have those mature conversations. But what's yeah. happened here, when the, government, when the Premier steps out and says he's going to announce this mega-project, it puts the, the necessary conversations that need to happen first, it puts them uh, at the back of the line. And that's a completely inappropriate uh, uh, approach for a premier that um, has, has put a major focus on reconciliation. But are you, are you opposed to a museum of any kind, like if the museum was done yeah. correctly? Okay. No, so, I, I'm just okay. saying that the, the order of the conversation, the reality that Indigenous nations have been wanting to talk about repatriation and it's happened at a snail's pace, and then, you know, I, my, my real challenge here is that the conversation about repatriation becomes uh, immeasurably more difficult if we're building an $800 million museum to house all yeah. of these items. Right, right. So, you know, the, 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 the thing of it is, is that, you know, in my role in the, in the legislature is to hold the government accountable, and very, very few members of the legislature have ever experienced trying to repatriate a sacred item yeah. back to their to their family and so my role in there is to say look like you are you are having this conversation backwards and yeah, uh right. the museum doesn't want to have a conversation about repatriation they don't like that discussion because it means that some of their items go back you know go away from them yeah. uh and that the you know if we're going to have a conversation about a museum in the context of decolonization or in the context of reconciliation then it needs to be a legitimate conversation. It can't just be, like I said in that, it can't just be wrapped in a veneer of reconciliation okay. because, All right. you know, that time has passed. Adam, thank you for coming on today. We'll see what's in the business plan this afternoon. Appreciate your time. Awesome. Appreciate yours. Have a great day. Oh. All right. Here we go now with the continuing battle over the bike lane in Stanley Park, especially after the traffic jams in the park on the long weekend. Bumper to bumper traffic on the single vehicle lane heading into the park. Uh, the traffic stretching back to Denman. Tempers flaring at times in the park, too. There's videos uploaded to social media, people just fuming, sitting in their cars in traffic. They're trying to go through the park. All right. If you're a cyclist, you're cycling into the park, I guess you like the bike lane. But what if you have mobility issues? Maybe you're in a wheelchair. Maybe you use a walker. Maybe you're an elderly person. You can't walk very far. Well, that bike lane's not helping you. And the restricted access to the park is a big problem. I got Phil Rankin standing by. Have a listen to this here first. Now, we talked about this on the show yesterday. We got a ton of phone calls on this issue. Here's just a sample of how people are feeling here. Anybody with a brain knows you have to take away the bike lane. They did this slowly and methodically, taking away the car lanes and then replacing temporarily with bike lanes. Now, they're all permanent. This move has missed the mark. We really need to help those two lanes open. The whole part of your day is sitting in traffic. They've got to open that up. Put the lane back to traffic so if a car stalls, at least traffic can get around them. Stanley Park needs to turn back to what it was. Even if you actually open up the second lane, it's not going to do any harm in any sense. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Phil Rankin. <laughs> Phil is a long-serving Vancouver lawyer, and he's been uh, deeply involved in this uh, fight and this story. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Phil, thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you. All right, Phil, can you tell the listeners a little bit about the lawsuit you were involved there? Involved yes, with there? Uh, about a month after they closed the park to cars, April 8, 2020, we brought a human rights complaint on behalf of 
five elderly and disabled people. Some had MS, uh, amputees, people with a heart transplant and things like that as symbolic of the kinds of people because the West End actually has a the biggest demographic is probably uh, elderly people because we pointed out under the Section 8 of the Human Rights Act, you cannot discriminate against services offered to the general public, which of which parks are part of that. Uh, on April 8th, the, you know, ironically, the retiring general manager Bromley and the retiring general uh, city manager Sandu uh, agreed on April 8th to close the park to cars and on April 9th to close Beach Avenue that was the city manager's decision, uh, to traffic. And then they left. They, they stopped being, within a month, they were both gone. And, uh, and, they, let, and they said it was an operational decision. But actually, it was a, I, I'm a more of a conspiratorial. I believe that this was cooked up all along by ideologues, mm. uh, basically on the park sport, who were always keen to have a bike-only lane uh, in the park and didn't care, and then, and then try to justify it with COVID yeah. or climate change. Do you think that the fact that there's still a single lane for vehicle traffic going into the park, so if you do have mobility issues, if you're in a wheelchair or whatever, you can still access to the park in a, in a vehicle on that single lane. Do you think, though, that that single lane is not adequate and that that's still a barrier for people? Of course it's not. Ad- it never was adequate from April 8th, and it was never necessary. because It also, we have, you have to remember, 20% of the park is unreachable by cars. Separately, Avenue, Second Beach, exiting onto onto Beach Avenue, has been closed for over two years, and so it isn't an issue whether the, the so anybody who has mobility issues cannot see about twenty percent of the park and cannot leave on Beach Avenue, and is forced yeah. into uh, merging lanes on Georgia Street, both going in and out of the park. Of course, these that, that's completely wrong, and everything that he's done to justify it, like. Uh, climate uh, COVID was bogus and climate change was bogus. There's no evidence that, that either of those things was helped by closing the, the, the bike lanes, excuse me, the cars, car lanes, and, and it's proved to be a disaster, which it will, always was. Right. When you uh, you talked about some of your clients here on this case, people with mobility issues, they've got barriers to getting into the park with restricted access. What what are the your clients said to you? Like, how has this affected them and their enjoyment of the park, their ability to visit the park? Well, many, many of them stopped going to the park altogether. It's just too difficult, too much, uh, too much traffic, too much lineups. And you have to remember the whole north side of the park, they, they've restored some parking. But the great majority of angle parking, when all of it, in fact, on the north side of the park uh, at Lumberman's Arch and continuing, is gone. And all of the views are on the right side of the road. I mean, if you drive and are looking, it's the, the, it's the left side of the road is now for cars. The right side of the road is for bicycles. And you have, that means you have to cross in front of bicycles to get into a parking lot. And also your views are obstructed. So it really has ruined the experience for people going to the park. There's a whole bunch of people that don't have any rights. That, that's the families and the people that want to have graduation parties and they want to have marriages and that kind of thing, they're all affected. They can't go to the park uh, uh, with large numbers of people and find parking and get into the park in a convenient way. And this is, again, this, this, they did uh, uh, surveys, but the surveys were always directed towards people on bicycles and not to the general public. And now they're doing a mobility study, which as far as I'm concerned, the books were cooked because these are all basically uh, anti-car, or, which in my mind means anti-handicapped, anti-aged, anti-people with mobility problems. Uh, we're not going to solve the climate change by stopping people from going to the park. This is not a local park. Stanley Park is not a local park for people who have bicycles. Stanley Park is a national park 
given to the citizens of Vancouver in the 1890s by Lord Stanley for everyone. It's it's the probably the most well-known urban park in Canada, and they have ruined it, and they have mm. deliberately ruined it. I, gear, I assume ideologically they think they're doing something good, but in reality, these are ideologues who don't really care about facts. They, they, they have a vision in their own mind, and since they like bicycles or they ride bicycles, they think everyone must, and somehow that that's, somehow that that's the future. Well, what? it isn't. When you think about climate change and the environment, and that I think is clearly one of the motivations here, you know, I mean, the traffic jams that we saw on the weekend, bumper-to-bumper traffic, just idling, that's not very good for the environment. And also, they haven't got one study to demonstrate that having a bike lane is saving any carbon capture at all. And certainly, if you're riding in a park, uh, in a car, you never pose a COVID threat. What they said was basically that the we have to limit the number of people in the park. So let's limit people who use cars. And then people that use cars are handicapped. And, I mean, every a lot of people use cars. But particularly people with mobility issues must use cars. And so in the end of it all, you had only two good uh, people on the, on the park board, Cooper and, and Trisha Barker, voting yeah. against and trying to get a special meeting organized of which they sabotage and then they took away the right for for minorities to call special meetings so they've done everything that they can to thwart any opposition and to stifle any uh, opposition and they've and they've created even the little rules we had for democracy have been denied the public meetings were using covid we could never go publicly to to uh, complain to them we had to do it online by zoom they were completely insulated from criticism, and generally, the, particularly the written press, it was extremely uh, uh, biased, biased in favor of them, and not setting out in any detail the problems that these people have caused. Speaking of Phil Rankin and his BC Human Rights case representing people with mobility issues and access to Stanley Park. This has been going on for a long time, Phil, and we know that the wheels of justice will grind slowly. It sounds like they grind very slowly at the Human Rights Tribunal. Like, how long has this been going on now? We finished our case months ago, and the, the, the lawyer, there was the city lawyers, and then they gave up and hired a private firm. And they're very well retained with huge amounts of money. I mean, uh, there's millions and millions of dollars of lost revenue that have taken place in the park because of lack of parking. But they're spending equal amounts of money for their legal team to just drag this out forever and uh, of course we're all um, well, we're, uh, we have one lawyer that's paid modestly and the rest of us are doing it pro bono we have an online uh, fundraiser but basically we're we are on a shoestring and they're on uh, on the plus plus plan of paid by the city by paid by the parks board and so not only there's huge amounts of money are being spent to keep this uh, bike lane going what, and what and if next- you actually drive to the park, which I do oh. quite often, between Mondays and Thursdays, there's virtually no bicycles in it at all. There's like three or four, and maybe in the early morning, you get a little bit more on the weekends. But essentially, and we've been driving with cars all my life. I've been going to that park. I, my father walked it almost three or four days a week. And there was never a problem sharing the road with bicycles. The seawall had some problems occasionally with people trying to go too fast on bicycles when people were walking. But essentially... It wasn't an issue. When you go out along Lagoon Avenue, we share the road with bicycles to Georgia Street. It's still not a problem. This is basically, they've created a problem where there was no problem. Okay, last question for you, Phil. Where, when do you expect this a ruling to come down from the Human Rights Tribunal? Is there any date for a decision? I think that, I think that the city's lawyers 
strategies to get it past the next election, frankly. And okay. uh, so I don't know the answer to that, but I suspect it won't be until uh, uh, 2023. Um, it may, I mean, I might be surprised, but I don't think so. The way things are going now, I don't think it will ever come to fruition while the, while the city election's on. And I think okay. this is our one chance to, to get back Stanley Park. And actually, there's a lot of things in this next election whether it's closing Strathcona Park or, or the Oppenheimer Park for years, the millions of dollars have been spent, the whole Broadway corridor. There's lots yeah. of changes. city is changing, and if the people of Vancouver don't uh, do something soon, the city that they love is going to be changed forever, and it will not be returned. Bill, thank you for coming on today. Appreciate your time. Okay, thank you. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the shortage of baby formula in the United States, also impacting supplies here in Canada, too. The U.S. has taken the brunt of this, largely impacted when a major production facility in Michigan was shut down after uh, some problems there with the contamination from bacteria. And in the United States, uh, yeah, this has been a big problem. U.S. President Joe Biden authorized the use of Air Force planes for an effort to bring in formula from Europe. Operation Fly Formula. Uh, no commercial flights were available. Flying in infant formula to the United States. Here in Canada, um, there have been some problems, too. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, though, reassuring Canadians. Let's have a listen to Trudeau here on the baby formula issue. We see the shortage in the United States. In Canada, we've been monitoring carefully uh, what the situation is. We're still uh, looking like we're fine. There are a few challenges around some more uh, specialized formulas for uh, particularly vulnerable kids. We are confident that uh, the work that we're doing to secure uh, supply from elsewhere and to ensure that uh, Canadians have those options uh, is going to be fine. Okay, as uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau there talking about some of the supply chain troubles around infant formula has left some parents scrambling here to find formula for their infants and toddlers. Let's discuss now with my guest, Janet Music. Janet is a research program coordinator at Dalhousie University. Very pleased to welcome her. Janet, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, listening to Justin Trudeau there saying everything's going to be fine, is that the way you read it too? Well, you know, it's a complicated issue. And, you know, I think everybody's threshold for hungry children is pretty low. Um, (laughs) So telling parents, you know, that your baby is going to be fine when you're having issues trying to source the food that they will eat or 
if they need specialized formula or the cost is going through the roof, I don't know that that brings families a lot of comfort uh, exactly. Yeah, where does Canada get baby our baby formula? Because I understand we manufacture baby formula here, but a lot of it is for export. Yeah, we do. You know, it's an interesting market. It's it's a shrinking market, baby food, here in North America, not just Canada, but America as well. So declining birth rates across the board. So, you know, we don't have a lot of new entrants into that market, so to speak. But we do, you know, I know it's been all over social media in the last, you know, three or four days. There's a big plant in Kingston, for example, that, you know, makes exclusively for Chinese export. Uh, they don't make formula for Canada at all. They're not uh, licensed to do so. They have made an application uh, to start producing, but, you know, that application isn't complete. And, you know, it's going to take some time from even when they are approved to get the product on the shelf. But otherwise, we do manufacture it here. And, and to Trudeau's point, you know, we are we do have it here, um, but it's probably going to be more expensive for families who are looking for it. Right. A lot of the infant formula in Canada, is it imported from the United States typically? So it's a, you know, infant formula is part of what we would think of as a dairy food. And dairy in Canada is regulated in a different way than, say, things that we would, you know, apples or, or other products that we get from the United States with packaged goods and so forth. And so it's it's very regulated, and one of those one of those uh, issues is imports into Canada. So we don't get a lot of dairy imports because they have pretty high tariffs coming into the country, which is good for our dairy farmers, you know, and and it's good because we get good Canadian quality dairy products. But in times like this, when when there's a, a large kind of trading partner that goes offline because of one plant we start to kind of wonder about our supply, but we do make it here. And, you know, to that point, Health Canada has, you know, uh, approved formula to come in from Europe, which we generally wouldn't do. There's kind of outstanding date for that. The date is uncertain, so not sure when or if that's going to happen. But, you know, producers who uh, make formula to the standard that we would expect uh, that we enjoy here in Canada, they will be allowed to import in in this case. Right. Speaking of Janet Music from the Agri-Food Analytics Lab, Dalhousie University, the is there any evidence, we heard in that clip there from Justin Trudeau, that some specialized infant formulas are maybe more difficult to source for parents if they're looking for a specialized product. But is there any indication or have you seen any reports that Canadian parents are having trouble sourcing formula for their children? Um, is there any kind of panic buying or hoarding going on of it you're aware of? Yeah, so that's, you know, what we're kind of starting to see now is that parents are are, are nervous about their supply. And you know, we understand that completely. And so a natural response to that would be to kind of buy more than you would need in the short term, which actually impacts the problem negatively. So it kind of compounds the problem in the short term so that, you know, there are parents who can't afford to stockpile. And, and when people hoard, it, it doesn't help, actually. It, it makes the problem worse. So we always 
I ask people not to do that, to buy only what they need in the short term. And, and you know, this is going to be a short-term product, uh, problem. Politically, this cannot go on. And you see that in the United States. It's, it's a non-starter. So Biden is pulling out all the stops because there is no way that we can have babies who are hungry in North America. It just yeah. won't play with voters. You know, it's just a, it's a non-starter. Right. It, this is such a, a, an, a, an incredible time here for all the challenges in our food supply system, the supply chain issues. We're seeing inflation at 30 plus year highs right now. Another record high reported last month by Statistics Canada. You're a researcher specializing in our, our food supply system. Like when you take a look at supply, the supply chain generally in Canada for food supplies, where are we at right now? Is it getting is it getting worse? Are there any particular segments of the supply chain that are in tougher uh, situation than others? Well, luckily, we're going into that lovely growing season here in Canada. So, you know, as the onset of the growing season continues, so into July, August, and and into the fall, products that we actually grow here end up on our shelves, and they have less, you know, kind of food miles to get to our houses. And and then we will see, you know, predictably, we will see a bit of a decrease in price. Traditionally, that's been the case. It's it's a bit of a unique kind of area we're in right now, though, because we haven't really experienced a war in Europe this generation yeah. or even, you know, it's over 100 years, right, or almost 100 years. And so that's impacting things like fertilizer, which, you know, all crops need. Gas energy prices are kind of through the roof. So when inputs for farmers are more, that tends to end up on the retail shelf. So we'll see that uh, when we go shopping. And I think this kind of so-called great resignation where people are, are moving around in their employment to get the best situation for their themselves, and, and we have every right to do that, but it's leaving big gaps in, in industries like shipping. And, wow. you know, we're a big country, but, you know, we're, our cities are far apart and far from the ODs here. I'm in Halifax. It's quite far from you know, the prairies where a lot of the food is grown. So that is an issue. And we'll, you know, we have to see how that's going to play out in the short term. But inflation, I think, is a global problem. And in Canada, you're suffering from inflation, but so is every other Western nation in the world. And that's the direct impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. What about meat prices right now? I got uh, two teenage boys at home and a couple of weeks back, they asked me for roast beef for dinner. And uh, so I went to the grocery store to check out a nice cut of roast. I was like, I'm going to need a line of credit here to, to pay for this. I mean, it's just, it was just so expensive. Like meat is just incredibly expensive right now. Like what is, what is driving that? Why are, why are meat prices particularly so elevated right now? Well, it's interesting, you know, so Cape, um, when StatsCan released those numbers, it said, you know, top strip loin steak is 52% more expensive now than it was in December. But yeah. that's more of a the luxury cut of meat. We're not having that every day for dinner, though that would be nice. Um, but, you know, we're seeing this kind of the cost of beef through the roof. And it could be a number of things, you know, it was a really difficult kind of growing season for plants but also for herds last year where there were droughts on the on the prairies 
where, you know, herds had to be shrunk down because it was just too expensive to water and care for them. But there is a kind of an X factor there that we're digging into to kind of understand why beef is going in one direction when chicken and pork are going in the opposite direction. And it's difficult to say because, you know, at the retail price, when you're in the we're in, when you're in the store, all of those kind of prices are set in the boardroom, and and those secrets are kept really close to the chest. So it really needs to be dug into, and those questions need to be asked. And we are looking into it, but it's interesting to see it happen. But you know, to your point, it's absolutely expensive to feed two you know two teenage boys. And, you know, I hope they like chicken. They do. They eat it all. But um, I know that there has been some allegations of price fixing in, especially when it comes to beef. I was reading recently about a a class action lawsuit on that. Are are you familiar with that? Like, is there any evidence of any kind of collusion or price fixing or, you know, gouging going on? Yeah, I, I am. We are aware of that. And we are we're watching that closely. It's very difficult to prove you know, if you remember back in 2017, I think it was when it was the bread pricing, you know, yes. car, so-called cartel. And really, we only found that out because Galen Weston announced it. He, you know, he admitted to it in the media. And so then we were, you know, as consumers, we were kind of like, well, what's happening here? But, you know, you really need someone on the inside to kind of let you in. Otherwise, how how do you prove it? And it is yeah. interesting, and, and the numbers are certainly suspicious. And consumers are right to be cynical because a lot of our disposable income now is going towards uh, food and household maintenance. Yeah. I appreciate your time and your expertise today. Thank you very much for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. Okay, here we go now with the hottest movie in the world. Man, you talk about a blockbuster here. Top Gun Maverick, the long-awaited sequel to the original Tom Cruise picture, Top Gun, one of my favorite movies. And finally, the sequel is here. Top Gun Maverick, it opens this weekend. And check this out. Analysts saying this could be the biggest Tom Cruise movie ever. This is an actor who's racked up massive movie hits, but the new Top Gun movie could be his biggest ever. All right, let's check in with Scott Schantz now. He is the producer of this show, and he got a sneak peek of the new Top Gun movie last night. I believe he's still geeking out about it. Hey, Scott. Hey, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. I am over the moon about this movie. It was so good. Like You and I talked about this yesterday, and I was elated to find out that you are also a Top Gun fan, because it it means the, the original means so much to so many people. It was the movie that put Tom Cruise on the map. It's still holds up you know it's it, it's just so 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 great and here we are 36 years later we finally get the sequel so before we dive in on how great it was uh here's a little clip of tom cruise himself talking about why it took this long and this was now the time for the sequel to top gun as time went on every year i would release a movie people would be like what about top gun make another Top Gun. And it didn't ebb. It got 
you know, now it was generational. Now I'd be talking to three generations and I would go home and I'd think, okay, what, what could I do? So he, he was aware that it has been so long and the pressure was was building for this movie, which is crazy because, usually, you know, like that he's like he's talking about it didn't ebb. It didn't die off. But I when the trailers first came out for this movie, I was a little worried because like you, I was so invested in the first one. You know, you don't want the sequel to destroy the legacy. Like, what is the new Top Gun even going to be about like is he still a fighter pilot at 60 years old so then we get a little sneak peek in the trailer captain pete maverick mitchell let me be perfectly blunt you are not my first choice you are here at the request of admiral kazansky aka iceman with all due respect sir i'm not a teacher just want to manage (laughs) expectations aviators this is your captain speaking so we get this little <laughs> idea that tom cruise is a teacher and i'm not this is going to be a spoiler free review so don't oh, worry good, if if, if you're concerned about seeing it and by the way the movie opens on friday but there are early screenings at certain theaters you can google that because it does open some places uh tonight and then tomorrow night there's early screeners and stuff but tom cruise he reprises the role as maverick and he is going back to top gun to teach this crew of of new kids. So how does this compare to the original? Well, as yeah. a huge fan, Mike, you will love, and again, this is spoiler free, but the, the very first shot of yeah. the movie of Top Gun Maverick starts like this. Oh, yeah. Oh, bring it on. Yes. Love like, it. Like, I'm so glad <laughs> that they didn't have some new artist cover this song, but they kept well. with the actual original song and the Top Gun theme and everything. And basically, the movie starts with, like, a shot-for-shot, shot, you know, aircraft carrier, planes taking off, all of that type of stuff. And then, of course, it dives into the storyline, which I will say is actually almost better. Uh, yeah, it's actually better than the first Top Gun. The story, wow. I was like, what are they going to do for this story here? But it's it's serious, and right away, you're invested, and it's believable, and like you were saying, the expectation is really high. So some of the other reviews for this movie, I'll just, I, I found a few here. Some yeah. people, one, one review says, Top Gun Maverick improves on the original in every conceivable way, and does so in a way that makes it one of the greatest sequels ever made. Oh. Top Gun Maverick is a rare sequel that's not only better than the original, but makes the the original uh, altogether deeper and hardly anything in Top Gun Maverick will surprise you except how well it does nearly all the things audiences want and expect it to do. So, all right. Yeah. So, Mike, it is as good as you think it's going to be, maybe even better. And, uh, you know, I was talking with a lot of people after the screening, and everybody was just absolutely jazzed. Like, throughout the performance, there were tons of times that people were cheering, people were clapping, people were laughing. It has all these nostalgic moments. But you yeah. think about what made the original Top Gun so great. It was the planes, right? And now sure. they've come to this place where we can take this fighter jet stuff and and film it and do it at a level that like has never been seen and everybody's talking about this but the fact that there was so little CGI and i mean i love the superhero oh. movies but in a yeah. time of superhero movies to see a guy like tom cruise 
learn how to fly a fighter jet and the things that they do with them. Oh, it is good. It is so good. It's believable. Like the romance between him and Jennifer Connelly, who plays a love interest. That's believable. Miles Teller, who plays uh, Goose's son from the original. That's not a spoiler. He's believable. Like, I mean, as much as Tom Cruise, say whatever you want about Tom Cruise. That guy gives his all every time. Oh, I know. Like, listen, I love the guy. I mean, you know, his, his personal life or beliefs aside, who cares about that? I love the guy as an actor, and I've always loved all his movies, and Top Gun, one of my favorites. And I'm thrilled to hear that that you, you loved it and you enjoyed it. I am pumped. I can't wait to see it myself. Taking a look at the ratings on Rotten Tomatoes right now, Scott, 97% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So this is getting thumbs up all over the place. And one of the ads I saw for Top Gun, it said, see it on the biggest screen you can possibly find. Right. So that's what that's my hope is to see it on the big. Did you see it on a jumbo screen? last Yeah. Night yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they had it on the biggest screen in the theater. Right. Like the big curved screen. And I got there early enough that I actually got one of the seats that, you know, they have the D box seats that vibrate oh, yeah. and yeah. shake <laughs> with the screen because yeah. it's just so intense. Like the, the yeah. dog fights and, you know, the afterburners when he fires up the afterburner and the jet like oh, it, yeah. it, man, you're just right there. And I mean, I I'm normally annoyed by the people who clap at movies. I'm like, Tom Cruise can't hear you clapping for him, but I couldn't help it. It's just so good. So make sure you see, I mean, I'm sure it's going to be super busy this weekend. It's scheduled to make like, I don't know, $200 million. It's going to be the summer blockbuster for sure, but I would definitely see it on a big screen. Okay, does Tom Cruise do a lot of his own stunts? And then, like, he's famous for doing his own stunts. And I know he's a pilot himself. So he's in the cockpit of these planes. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. And he actually, one of his own planes from his personal collection is featured in the film. It's not one of the F-18s, but he talks a lot in in the interviews and stuff about how he learned to fly an F-18 just to do this. And, you know... All of this is accurate that he he measures the G forces and talks in the film about, you know, like when you're doing this maneuver, it's going to feel like you have an elephant sitting on your chest because of the G forces. It's going to feel like you're blacking out because of the G forces. And he went through all of that and put the cast through all of that to get that authenticity in the film. And you can see it. Yeah, it's it's a real deal. And like you, you know, I was a bit worried about this sequel too because it was delayed multiple times. A lot of it due to COVID and stuff. But I started thinking like, oh no, don't tell me this thing is going to be a bust or a flop or it's not going to be very good. But to my great surprise, is like everybody seems to love it. Right? Yeah, and you know what? I almost think that that makes it better. You know, that Tom Cruise and the people behind the movie that they said this needs to be seen on a big screen. And yeah. we don't know when that's going to be, but we're not going to put it out until it's seen on a big screen. And they put all this effort in and they had all this momentum. You know, the trailer came out at the Super Bowl and stuff. And then they just said no. And they've been sitting on this perfect movie for two years, knowing yeah. what they had. And they've just been waiting. And now we get it. It's just it's like a Cinderella story. I just love it. OK, Scott, I can tell you're still riding the high. This is awesome. I'm glad you, I love that you loved it so much. I know I'm going to, I'm pumped for it too. You sold me. Yeah, I can't I'm wait. Going. Then we can talk about it, Mike. You yeah, got to go see sh- it. For sure. And I'm glad you didn't do any spoilers. That's great too. Scott, thanks for this. Yeah, my pleasure.